0: This is Mission.org.
1: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This episode of Marketing Trends was conducted live at the Salesforce World Tour in Chicago. It features an interview with Tracy Eiler, CMO of Inside View, and co-author of Aligned to Achieve, how to unite your sales and marketing teams into a single force for growth. On this episode, Ian and Tracy discuss why sales marketing alignment is so important, how to achieve it, and common CMO pitfalls to avoid. Thanks for listening.
2: Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes.
0: Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. I am joined by Trace Haller. What's going on?
3: How are you? Thanks for the invitation.
0: So we're sitting here live in the Intercontinental, not a sponsor, but they are our host for today. We're going to do a live episode, and in front of us is the entire Pardot team. So uh, let's let's hear it for for everybody out in the crowd. Now, since we are live, I'm going to be sitting here holding a special book, which... My guest here wrote on sales and marketing alignment, the topic of our conversation today. In this book is my phone. I might be getting a DocuSign at some point, so I just got to make sure I'm checking every now and then. Uh, I just got to just sneak peeks there. And uh, we're really excited to talk to Tracy about sales marketing alignment. It's one of the most popular topics that we have on the podcast. And there's a reason for that. It's really hard. I know that we might not have that problem in this room because sales and marketing are so closely aligned. Um, But for a lot of the marketers that we have on the podcast, a lot of the CMOs, this is a huge struggle. Um, We've had this rise of the chief revenue officer. Well, what is that person? Do they have a background in marketing? Do they have a background in sales? Do they have both? Who is ultimately controlling the numbers? We have products now that you can buy directly from a website. You don't need to talk to a sales rep. That's a big concern. Who owns those numbers? When does the salesperson get involved? And so a lot of this stuff we're going to be talking about with Tracy. Tracy, but first, what was your first job in marketing?
3: I was 16 years old, and I was an SDR, and we didn't call it SDRs at the time. I think we called them, I think we called ourselves lead generation specialists, Um, but I worked at a software company in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Comshare. Um, This was before I went to Michigan. I know there's some Michigan alum in the audience, go blue. And what was interesting about that job was it was very similar SDR roles to SDRs today. We basically were lead qualification people, but this was before internet, before CRM. So this is like circa 1984, I guess. And there were four high school kids that were SDRs, and we were all named Chris Kelly. So we all had a generic name because Chris never got promoted. Chris never went off to college. There was just always a Chris available, right, to answer the phones. And most of our lead gen was done in advertising. And um, we had a business intelligence product called System W that you could buy. It was a dashboard for finance execs, and you could buy it in oak or cherry. I'm not kidding. You could, like, literally buy the console that came with the software software. And that's how I first got the bug for sales and marketing.
0: I think that's a little different than me because my first job out of school was going to the military because I was an officer in the army. Not a lot of uh, marketing people and not a lot of salespeople in the U.S. Army, it turns out. So when I got out of the military and I went into, I took an AE role and then I switched over to marketing, one of the funny things happened. When I was in Afghanistan, we had night shift and day shift. So I would come into the office and I would talk to, talk to night shift, be like, hey, what happened in the night shift? Uh, How are things? What was going on? They'd be like, oh yeah, it was great. Except for the fact that day shift just like, didn't do any of the paperwork that they needed to do. And so we had to do it all. And I was like, man, that's crazy. So then I would talk to day shift and be like, hey, how are things are going? They're like, yeah, it's pretty good. But night shift, like, what do they do? Are they even doing any work? And so when I flash forward to when I became a marketer after sales and I'm talking to all the marketing people and they're like, God, we send the best sales to leads and they never freaking close any of this stuff. And I'm like, wait, I was just a salesperson and hearing all of my peers being like, wait a second, what is marketing doing with all this money? And I'm like, man, this reminds me. So what we did was we took um, in Afghanistan, we took both the teams, we jumbled them together and like switched everybody out. And like a month went by, everything was good. Two months went by, three months went by. Like, hey, how everything's going like, on oh, night shift, man, they don't do anything. I'm like, dude, you were just on night shift. <laughs> like, literally, you were on night shift three months ago. So clearly, it's not night shift. It's just clearly there's a lot of work to do and there's a lot of finger pointing and blame around. So we eventually made a rule that. You couldn't talk about night shift or day shift, like no finger pointing. And it's something that later on in my company and stuff we do at the mission as well is there's nobody to blame. You just solve the solution. What are some best practices as a CMO that you've seen to align sales and marketing?
3: That's a big subject. And in fact, the subject of this book that I co-authored two years ago with my VP of enterprise sales at the time. So she and I put together all that material and it covers people, process, and technology issues. We interviewed a whole bunch of uh, people like us and uh, did a lot of original research. So I have a lot of things to say about it. Before I do that, you were talking about you know conflict. And the number one cause of death for someone like me is someone like a sales VP. That is the number one cause of death. If that person is unhappy with marketing and they squawk to the CEO, marketing goes away first. The marketing exec gets let go first, and then you know the sales VP earns another couple of quarters. You know, try and get things right, and then the cycle starts over again. And I've worked for CEOs who literally told me that they wanted what they called healthy tension, air quotes, healthy tension, um, between sales and marketing, and it was like almost like a Darwinian survival of the fittest thing where they thought that if we fought, there would be a better result, right? And we all know how awful that can be. So there are many best practices that I've employed and learned about to create empathy, create understanding, create information sharing, and, and things like that.
0: Healthy tension sounds like a horse name. It's like it's like yeah. win the Kentucky Derby. Um, the, you know what's funny? <laughs> healthy tension. You know what's funny is we talk to a lot of CMOs on the podcast And we've had some folks that are uh, like, for example, Sean Shepard, who is like top 20 sales influencer, awesome guy. If For those of you who, who are looking for a really good person who puts out a lot of good sales stuff. And what's so funny is a lot of them describe what's happening here today that doesn't happen at their company. They don't. Ever actually sit side to side with marketers. They don't ever have marketers around them. They don't ever have these type of experiences where you just get to sit down and like know what they're doing. And it's really hard to run an organization to be partnered with someone where you're sitting out there every single day, like freaking out because the 31st of the month is coming. And you know, it's the 30th, and you walk by marketing and where are all the people in the desk? Where are they? Like we need some help here, right? Whereas on the converse side of things, what we've talked to CMOs about is on the, you know, whatever, fifteenth of the month when their plans are due, they're sitting there trying to plan for, you know, two quarters out from now and they're pulling like all nighters or doing all this sort of stuff or getting this, getting these things ready. And they walk by and they're like, Oh, sales at lunch. They just didn't know what each other was doing. How do you get on the same page? How do you promote that same pageism?
3: The the same pageism you're talking about and the conflict there, one of the fundamental differences, right, is... Salespeople are working on a monthly or a quarterly cadence and marketing is working on a much longer cadence than that. And so that is part of what drives attention. I think it's up to marketers to adjust, right? And part of that is because my husband's a sales VP and I and we're on a quarterly rhythm at home, right? Like I just, I live his quarters, I know exactly when mid-quarter starts, I know exactly when the walls start closing in. And so I think it's, you know, beholden on marketers to adjust and figure out good ways to communicate with sellers. Like for example, never, never launch a product two weeks before the end of the quarter, right? You're not going to get your sales folks' attention, but there's some practical things you can do. So in addition to things like, you know, quarterly planning meetings that a lot of companies have, or you do operational review and so on, we started something that has a goofy name. I didn't come up with this name, Smarketing, which is a meeting um, that happens every other week between sales and marketing leadership, and then some of our lieutenants. And it's it's a very tactical meeting. It has a six-week window of conversation. So when we have that meeting, we're sort of in week three. So we look back. About two and a half weeks at what just happened, what leads we're prosecuting, how things went, how we all felt about that show we just spent money on, or whatever the thing might be, and then we look forward and we tell our sellers, "Hey, this is coming up. This product is coming, you know, to be launched." Or um, we know a competitor is going to make this move or that move, and then we'll collaborate. It's also a place where we might show creative, as an example, right? And you know, this is where it gets a little tricky because. Marketing and sales, it's not a democracy. It's not like I'm going to put up two ad campaigns and let everybody vote and then the vote wins, right? We're, we're doing things intelligently, but there's some socialization that needs to happen about the mar- things that marketing is doing, whether they're campaign themes or campaign tactics that I want my sellers to react to. Like, yes, I think this would work with my customers or not work with my customers. So just that simple kind of six-week window meeting that we do every other week has gone a very long way in making sure that we know what each other's working on and what the challenges are. The other tactical thing is whenever a new marketing person starts on our team, they go collate, go co-locate with the salespeople. So, you know, the sales folks are all sitting together. The SDRs are sitting together. Marketing is sort of nearby, but just imagine, you know, a big open pod First two weeks that I went on the job, I just went and sat right in the middle of the SDRs. I just want to know, like, what do the conversations sound like? What do the emails look like? What are the blockers? What's hard? And we do that with, you know, every new marketer that joins. And I think that's really critical. I'm not going to ask the sellers to come sit in a marketing meeting. Sellers have a number. You guys have a number to close. And so I feel like it's up to us to adjust And then form that empathy and really understand what all the the sales stages are, who the top ranked sellers are. There's a lot of information that I think marketers can bring to the table and learn that are going to make them build better empathy and understanding.
0: You know, one one of the things that you talked about in your book, which is a really salient point, is this idea that the customer doesn't see you as sales and marketing functions. And to be honest, they don't care. Like, that's one of the big things that a lot of the CMOs that we talk to, that their customers really don't care who the person is that they're talking to. They just want a flawless customer experience. There's no, you know, the handoff between an SDR to an AE, you know, bringing sales engineers in the room. That person could have any title. It's just how can they get their problem solved? What are some of the things that kind of you've seen from that perspective that your customers, similar personas actually, that have kind of talked to you and shared some secrets about?
3: We work with B2B sales and marketing people. We provide them with account and contact data inside their CRM and marketing automation. Simple as that. So when we are thinking about providing our prospects and customers with a good experience, we all know, we've all seen the stats from CEB and other places that say you know, 68% of the buyer's journey is complete before they ever make themselves known to us, right? And imagine, that is incredibly frustrating, right? So we spend a lot of time thinking about making information super accessible, being easily searchable, and anticipating what they might need. And you're absolutely right that the, the handoffs in the background must be seamless. And that is all about the data and the systems that underlie it, I'm convinced, between marketing automation and CRM and any other tools that are being used because customers don't want to have to repeat themselves again and again. Um, We did an audit on our own journey looking at what happens to a customer after they buy and they get that initial onboarding. They were super frustrated because when they got handed off to a CSM, they felt like they had to repeat their life story again. And meanwhile, they'd already told their life story to four other people prior to the sale. So I think some of those kinds of things, really perfecting that handoff, and that means documenting things in our systems, but also talking to each other as humans on an account team prior to going into that meeting to make sure that you know all of the information is really there, so that that customer feels like they've already been listened to and that you're their trusted advisor. Frankly, as corny as that sounds, it's really important.
0: I want to go back to the thing that you're saying earlier about how if the CMO and the head of sales both go to the CEO and are pointing at the other person being like this person sucks the CMO gets fired most of the time, right? I think, you know, from from the conversations we we will get into this a little later, that there's some real apprehension. I mean, the average um, life cycle the c m o is the shortest in the c suite you know for in technology i think it 's like eighteen months yes yeah, it 's
3: eighteen to twenty four now it 's gone up a teeny little bit before we get fired so
0: like yeah uh so you're talking about by the time uh if you 're on episode four of uh marketing trends podcast, like you might work for a different company by like episode thirty five right but it's it's a very real thing and when you come into a job and you're saying hey i want to look at a two year time horizon i want to make some moves in the first 90 days i want to make sure that i'm like listening to everyone and like hearing what's happening down to the rep level i want to hear the concerns like all the way th- through that chain of command what are some of the pitfalls that cmo's have in like how they screw this thing up
3: that's a big topic. I will tell you how I've addressed it, which is I crash meetings. Sales VPs seldom invite marketers to their meetings, in my experience. They seldom do it. They think we're kind of overhead, that we're going to just blah, blah about some playbook that we want them to take on. Um, they think we plan parties and events. My own data says that. they That's what they think we do. And when I, I have a a story that was really pretty awful, honestly, which I had was my first CMO job. So I had been a marketing leader in different specialties, but it was the first time I had the full on responsibility. And I, and I had met the CRO of this company and I was being brought in by the CEO, it was a, a big data analytics company. The mistake I made, however, was I didn't meet the CRO's lieutenants. So there were four sales VPs that each ran a division that was in, in this particular company, we had a vertical go-to-market, so there was a public sector person, a FinServ, and so on. And those folks hated marketing, and I did not know that. You know, I knew that there had been some conflict that had been discussed in my interview process, but the, my first day on the job, I go into this room, and there's these four people sitting there, all happened to be guys, that were running those four divisions, and they would not even shake my hand, you guys. Like, I literally walked over like, hey, I'm Tracy, I'm so excited to meet you, you know, we're going to be successful together, yay, you know, in my little cheerleader way. And literally, the, the alpha of the group who ran public sector, because it was three times the size of anything else, literally like brushed me off, like waved me off. Like, yeah, lady, you're the FNG. Anybody that's been in the military knows what the FNG is. And I, I can't say what it is in detail on this podcast, but look it It's a it family-friendly
0: podcast. Yeah,
3: family-friendly podcast. A lot of
0: kids listening in the car, <laughs> on people on the way to work or something.
3: Yeah, but it's basically like you're the person who's going to end up getting shot at the back of the platoon, so I'm not even going to make friends with you, right? Like that's basically the analogy. So they wouldn't even shake my hand. Like literally that happened. and And I remember that moment thinking like, wow, this is terrible. And, you know, I kind of got all big sister on him and just said, seriously, like this is how it's going to be. You guys aren't even going to talk to me. But what had happened in that organization was the CEO had chewed up and spit out four marketing VPs and like two and a half years. So there had been this revolving door of leaders for various reasons, and so to those sales VPs, marketing was completely irrelevant, and in fact, the alpha who ran the public sector team had literally told his people, do not listen to marketing, do not return their calls, do not do anything they say. And I found that out later. So that extreme can really happen. And the way that I have solved it, cause it's not the first time that this has happened to me. I mean, it sounds so awful, right? When I describe it and it really was pretty awful, but I've gotten used to it now is it enforce your way into their rhythm and prove to the sales leader that you want to seek to understand you really need to know what is blocking them and you want to get like right in their shorts you want to understand all the stages of the sales cycle what's going on with competition what tools are working and not working and then what is it that they want and in this particular case we had a very reference heavy sales cycle so vertical market go to go, vertical go to market strategy and those customers customers wanted to talk to people like them. And that was the the key to getting a deal done. And so You know, together came up with an idea that we were going to end up doing field marketing events where we'd bring customers and prospects together to orchestrate that conversation, and that made a huge difference. That earned marketing the right to then go put in the programs that we knew needed to be in place in the first place. But those kinds of things are happening, I'm sure, in your customer base, in this audience that's listening live today. There is going to be conflict in the sales and marketing teams, and you can make a difference there by bringing those leaders in the room together. That's a tactic we do at my own company, that's one of the reasons why that I worked on that book, was you can end up being a conduit of communication between those two teams and really kind of help them share information. And by marketing demonstrating a keen understanding of what is going on in the sales cycle and what is really going on with customer response, you you really do earn the right to then put in what you know is going to need to be implemented
0: yeah there's a great Harvard case study where it's like the Yale crew team or something It's a timely reference. oh there's any crew people in the audience? All right there you go. one guy um this is for you uh but so anyways there's uh there's there's like a boat and b boat and a boat's like way faster than than b boat are supposed to be and like b boat just starts like crushing a boat every single race, even though all the people on the team are, are not as talented and so the coach like takes a boat down to like they do like some like you know 10 mile run and at the end they're like let's talk about what's going on and they're all like well that person isn't rowing fast enough or that person isn't on the same so they have this like huge wrestling match and then they're like oh it turns out we're all kind of the same strength and then the next day a boat goes out and like crushes b-boat and I always think of this when, when you think about those type of conversations with the marketing VPs and the sales VPs, because especially in bigger companies, you have marketing VPs like the VP of brand and the VP of, you know, whatever, like field, or you have these different segments within the larger marketing landscape, but sales isn't structured like that at all. So it's like almost like a horizontal and a vertical integration. So there's a lot of ways that like the puzzle pieces don't necessarily
3: fit. Yeah. There's a lot of misunderstanding in a situation like that. For sure. And so, so I think a lot
0: of times what happens is the salespeople are like, yeah, I mean, I get what this person is doing, but what is the VP of brand doing? Like, are you just doing spreadsheets or like PowerPoints or, you know, like then they see the billboard ad or something like that that has three words on it. And you're like, that's what we're coming up with, right? But there's not a lot of explanation of why. And I think a lot of this stuff comes down to people not explaining why things are happening or being transparent. How do you facilitate transparency in that free information flow between both sides?
3: This is a big hot button of mine, transparency. I think it is absolutely critical and it's beholden on marketing to be transparent with sales, but it takes time, right? And you need... You need to grab those moments during the quarterly rhythm when you actually can get your sales folks' attention at meetings like kickoffs and in quarterly reviews or mid-year meetings. And, And what I endeavor to do, and not every marketing leader will do this because it takes time, but what I will do is explain why we are approaching a segment a certain way. Like let's say that we are putting together a customer upsell campaign because we know that we have a new product coming out that we think we can penetrate into half our customer base. Let's just pretend. I will explain to our sellers what what our assumptions are Why the product was built the way it was built, why we think that 50% uh, might be good candidates to buy. I'll bring some data about what we've learned. We would have socialized some of that information already, especially with top sellers. So, this is where I always appreciate it when a sales VP will publish a sales ladder because I always aim my team at hey, make sure we know the top 10% of the sales ladder, you guys, and let's make sure we also know all of the newbies in the sales team because those are the ones that we can get in with right away and help them be more successful. Let's go test some some of these messages early with our top, you know, the top sales performers and then explain to the sales team here are the three alternatives we considered and here's why we picked what we picked and the outcome we expect is X, Y, Z. And our milestones are going to be this and this and this. And whenever I take the time to do that, I find, you know, you just, you earn the respect of the sales team. Like, okay, they thought this out and often there'll be challenges, right? They might ask, well, did you think about this thing or that thing? And maybe we didn't. Yeah. That's Um, the great part, right? It is the great part because they can identify holes in that. Like, well, my customers wouldn't respond to that because they happen to be in the segment or Geo or, you know, whatever the case may be. So getting that dialogue going by setting the stage, I think, is really, really critical. And, and marketers, demand that of your marketers if you are a seller, demand that. And don't let them black box it for you. I, I remember when I first came to my current company, our lead scoring model was a total black box. And the marketing people that were in the team basically would tell the sellers, oh, you don't need to know about that, honey. We've got that covered, right? And it's just sort of condescending way. And it's like, no, let's open up the box and explain exactly how we are scoring. And let's agree on what makes a good lead or not a good lead. Something that's worthy of your time is the thing that I want to deliver as a marketing leader.
0: You know, it's really interesting because... There's are so many times where it comes down to the lead scoring or the billboard ad or whatever it is, and not the specific thing that you can point to and be like, I don't like that. But a lot of times, the bottom-up refinement is the thing, if you just have a vote, if you're the marketer who is constantly going to the... AEs on the ground, the SDRs on the ground or BDRs and asking for like, hey, when you're talking to human beings about this stuff, what are the things that they're actually telling you? And having a mechanism to do that. Eric Reese, who wrote Lean Startup, talks about that, like if you were to give like an innovation score to a company, that it is uh, how quickly ideas get from the bottom of the organization all the way to the leadership team. And I think that that's, it's more true in like sales and marketing alignment than anywhere because- the people who are actually talking to human beings about the reasons why they're buying is always way more, they're always buying for re- like, hey, I have to go to the board every year and sit down and explain to the board why we made these purchasing decisions and I need to have a you know, rock solid reason to do that or whatever. Or it's like, hey, I just you know, want a promotion and I, this is why I'm buying it or whatever it is. Those are never going to make it onto a, you know, a marketing slide unless there's that free flow of information.
3: You're absolutely right. What you're talking about is the listening part um, that I think marketers aren't always so good at. We're usually very good talkers, but not necessarily good listeners. I think the same thing could probably be said I was for sellers. Say both sides are- um, you know, could be guilty of that as well. And, and and it's listening really at all levels. One of the things I was studying recently was the use of. I can't remember what the fancy word for it is but it's essentially vocabulary mirroring so you know in, in emotional intelligence conversations you talk about body language mirroring so I would actually turn it slightly differently and turn towards you right and legs get crossed and then you know you, you mirror and lean into that other person when you're physically with them you can do the same thing with vocabulary and tone of voice and all sorts of things and so good marketers are going to study that and what's the vocabulary that there's, that their buyers are using so that They can help their sellers with content that's going to match that. And then the trainings that you go through and the role playings and all that other stuff, you know, really makes your sellers or anybody that's talking to a customer really sound like they are in the same on the same side as the customer but the
0: the cool thing is now with marketing you can pull that stuff from SEO trends you can pull that from the types of things that people are searching that they're clicking on the types of white papers you can inform what vocabulary people are actually using but it's like it's the same things it's the classic sales I don't want to say trick, but of mirror the length of emails that your customer is sending you or your prospect is sending you. Like if they write you, like, you know, two page emails, this is not pages, two swipes, scrolls, I don't know what it is, then you should be responding with that amount of fidelity. Well, you're
3: talking about essentially qualitative and then quantitative data, right? And the quant data is available to us today. Sometimes it's hard to make sense of it all, but there's lots of quant out there about what customers are doing, where they're clicking, where they're coming from and all the rest of it. And then there's that qualitative side that is much more human. And and what I find is Nothing will substitute better than me speaking personally to a handful of customers on top of my quant. Cause we're all going to have a gut feel about what's really going on. I also think that marketers and salespeople today need to be even more savvy about what's going on in the world culturally. This is a personal bias of mine, which is we need to be well read people. We need to know what's going on and. Politics and in music. And, 100%. And, and, yeah. and it makes us more relatable. It makes us more people. And when I think about when salespeople are approaching me as, you know, everybody wants to talk to the CMO, the ones that capture my attention are approaching me as a human. And in a very personalized way, you know, they've read my LinkedIn profile, they see that I was voted most feared in my senior year when I was at Michigan and I was a tried out. I buried that in the bottom of my profile because I want to know who's actually taking the time to read it, right? And when that relatability happens, it captures my attention. When it's that generic, like, hey, I'd love your time to talk about your business problems Tracy you know what my reaction is screw you I don't have time what are you talking about I'm not going to tell you my business pains why don't you go figure it out yourself all you have to do is read some of the things that I've talked about study up my company things of that nature. Read the book I wrote as an example yeah somebody once sent me a pitch on sales and marketing alignment and how important it was and I was just like oh you poor thing like you have no idea so I you know I think that human side like be human right and and i think that's especially important as we're looking inter intergenerationally like i graduated from college in 1988 right like to somebody that got out of school in 98 or 2008 i look like a geezer to them but i'm actually reasonably hip right and i'd
0: say you're very hip
3: well thank you but you know relating to people at that human level and then tying it together with business and other issues, I really think can make an enormous difference because we stay so anonymous for so long now that when you finally do speak to a human and you get that initial like, okay, this person is actually pretty awesome and I want to talk to them again. It's a big differentiator.
0: Yeah, I think um, Lauren, my my co-host Lauren Vaccarello, shout out. She's probably surfing somewhere in Australia. Or wherever she is, but she talked about that when when the report came out that CMOs had like a bigger budget than CIOs or whatever it was uh, a number of years ago, ten years ago, it was like they immediately just stopped answering their phones, stopped answering their emails. It was just like the cold outreach flood, and you know things books got written and all this sort of stuff. And she was just like. This is wild. Like, I just get hit up every single day, all day now, and I don't have time to explain my problems to 50 different people every day. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a tough challenge to deal with. Let's get into the final part of our interview, the lightning round. For those of you who listen, you know that the lightning round is our point to talk about fast and easy questions. You have no idea what's coming. Are you ready? I think so. And the lightning round, fast and easy, is brought to you by Pardot. (laughs) fast Uh, and easy marketing automation for CMOs like you first question what app on your phone is the most
3: fun I mean it's going to sound corny but I like I love Twitter honestly which I realize is not really what you're asking for but I get so much great information
0: that's fun I'm in I'm with it what marketing campaign are you most jealous of that you've seen recently
3: I like some things that some of our competitors are doing. I'm not going to name what they are because I don't want to give them any airtime, but I, I do admire other marketers, especially that are going after similar personas, and I see them being a bit more bold and human. I have worked for so many CEOs, you guys, who say, let's be bold, and then you show them bold and they chicken out. Um, I don't quite mean that bold and uh, I always admire it when I see another company being a bit edgier a bit friendlier a bit clever in their humor those are things that I'm jealous of
0: yeah we talk about it all the time if your marketing isn't remarkable like if you don't want to share it with your spouse or with someone you work with then uh, it's probably not doing the trick what is the worst advice that you've got as a marketer?
3: (laughs) I've been told several times in my career that I laughed too much and that I needed to diamond down. Not dumb it down, not dial it down, diamond down. And I bought myself a pair of diamond hoop earrings. Is that a
0: ski joke? Uh, No,
3: no, no. no. It's a jewelry joke. The ladies or the the men who like to wear diamond studs in the room will understand. So I bought myself a pair of diamond hoop earrings when I got divorced to celebrate that accomplishment. Um... (laughs) Because it was not a good marriage. This was years and years ago. And um, and I survived it. And and, uh, and so I bought myself these diamond earrings. You live and, your
0: best life. Imagine. And I
3: had a, a boss who was like, you know, I think you kind of need to diamond down. And what he meant was don't wear the bright colors, don't be the peacock, you know, blend in a little better.
0: So you took the advice, obviously. Uh,
3: Yeah, clearly. And it's just such terrible advice. It's basically like, don't be yourself, right? Try and be generic, which I just think is absolutely horrible advice. What technology, what marketing
0: technology are you most excited about going forward?
3: I'm personally excited right now about chatbot technology. We're doing an experiment um, seeing if we can convert visitors earlier to identifying themselves and guide them to a faster experience. We'll see if it ends up that way. I'm a little teeny bit skeptical that it's just going to end up cannibalizing our other forms. But we're right in the middle of it, and it, and it, early indicators are that it is a much better experience because the the visitors are going kind to of getting what they want much quicker, and the weirdness of whether you're talking to a machine or talking to a human seems to be shaking out of of that whole technology scene.
0: You're the co-founder of an awesome organization called Women in Revenue. Can you share a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So you guys know that there's many organizations now to advance women's careers in the STEM jobs, you know, math and engineering and science and so on. But there are phenomenal careers for women in sales and marketing. There's many in the audience right now listening and in this room. And But there's not really organizations for us and, and to help us in our careers. And so at the end of 2018, a group of 11 women got together that are all sales and marketing executives. They all happen to be in B2B SaaS companies for now and formed a group called Women in Revenue. It's a nonprofit. I'm on the board. I run the PR and content side of it. And our mission is to provide networking and mentorship for women like us and to get that next generation of leaders the support they need to advance in their careers. We're just about to release a major piece of research that we did that I'm actually finishing up right now that talk about what the blockers are to advancement and what companies can do to be more inclusive and attract us and also what men can do to as, as our allies and our sponsors. So I'm pretty excited about it and it would be a phenomenal thing for anyone that's listening to get involved in. Just go to womeninrevenue.org.
0: Yeah, and we'll link it up in the show notes. That's super exciting. That's it for Lightning Round. Lightning Round is brought to you by Pardot. You can go to pardot.com, P-A-R-D-O-T.com and learn more. That's it. That's all we got. Tracy. Thank Let's you. Let's give it over Tracy.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
1: You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences so you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot content management system has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.